0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're
2: a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts you can help the program grow and reach more people if you're interested in becoming a supporter go to patreon.com forward slash history hack where you'll find perks from secret facebook groups to early release material if you just want to leave us a one-off tip go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack the links are in the description and whatever form your kind support takes know that we are massively grateful Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack, the film Gladiator. We're going to do the re- reality behind it. Yes, you heard me right. Once again, we are not trolling you and clickbaiting you with this. We are going to talk to a brilliant guest who's going to take us through it all. But I'm joined, first of all, by Heather. You're right, Heather, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Oh, I'm I'm good. Thank you for caring. I'm I'm not used to people kind of turning around and asking, how how are you doing? Um, So who's our guest today? Why are we particularly looking forward to this one?
3: Today, we have historian and author Tony Sullivan, who has written King Arthur, Manor Myth and The Real Gladiator, the true story of Maximus Decimus Meridius.
2: This is exciting. Hi, Tony. How are you doing?
4: Hello, Zach. How are you?
2: Yeah, uh, I'm, I, again, I'm, I'm loving the love in the room. This, this is brilliant. Um, I'm well, thank you. It's, it's a hot day. Um, I think we're all kind of sweltering slightly in the heat. But Heather nods um, from what well, I'm sure is an air-conditioned uh, house in, in <laughs> Ohio. Um, shall we talk not about the history, first of all, but the film? You know, the Russell Crowe. I mean, I'll I'll be quite frank with you. If I ever go to the Coliseum, I have been told that I will be disowned by my family if I don't stand there and do the quote um, from the arena in the, in the Coliseum. Um, so let's just kind of talk about memories and what we made of it. What were your reactions? Heather, do you want to kick us off on that?
3: Uh, sure. Um, I remember being so very super excited for this movie um i love pretty much all things roman and gladiators are totally right in my my alley of loving everything about them Wanted to, wanted to be one but totally love learning about them i i saw the movie numerous times in the theater which is very rare for me normally it's one and done and it just enthralled me i was on the edge of my seat and just the, the colors and <clears throat> Maximus's journey from being in the army to having to fight, fight the beasts and other gladiators and then of course Commodus, who can forget Commodus because he's huge in this movie and he was just played superbly so it's honestly one of my favorite movies
2: Yeah, I think we'll probably talk about um, Joaquin Phoenix's Commodus in a bit, won't we? See, for me, this is going to make certain people who are listening feel a little bit old. I was something like a precocious 12 year old when I saw Gladiator for the first time. Um, and I, I didn't see it in the cinema for obvious reasons, um, but I remember feeling kind of very adult and grown up that this film was a 15 and I'd seen it at the age of 12. And I was very pleased about this. Um, so, I'll be honest, I'm still not much of a movie critic, but at the time I was just blown away. You know, that opening battle sequence with the fire and the sort of the edge of intelligence. Um, obviously, now I sort of look at it and go. Hmm. Um, but that's that's the journey of military historians. And then, yes, of course, who can forget the the scenes in the arenas? Um, or are you not entertained? Uh, that's another Great line uh, there, but yeah, I was blown away by it, um, as I think many people were. Tony, what about you? Were you a historian by the time you, you no, saw this for the first no,
4: time? No, not, not not at all. But I, I loved the film, much, like most people. It was absolutely fantastic. Love every bit of it. um And even um now, that I've, obviously, I've read it quite a bit on the Roman history. um Yeah, it, has, it wouldn't have really, it wouldn't have detracted from it my enjoyment of it. Or oh, I don't let. Um, I don't tend to let things like that uh, get in the way of enjoying films. Uh, And I actually watched it last night as a prep for this, just so I could remind myself. Probably about the 20th time I've watched the film. Um, And it's still brilliant. I still love it. I love it. Even though I know that some of the things are obviously, uh, you know, they're pushing it a little bit with some some of the things. But um, yes, I I absolutely loved it. I thought the character of Russell Crowe was brilliant. How um, Joaquin Phoenix didn't win a supporting actor Oscar that year, I do not know. He was absolutely brilliant. Um, And... um, Whilst there are, I mean we will talk about comedy later, um there are sort of alternative views on him. Um that's that's pretty good. That's a pretty good idea of what he might have been like. Yeah. You know? Um and um <clears throat> just in, you know, I mean the battle scene was, was fantastic, all the gladiators scene, the Battle of Zama one was the one I really, really enjoyed. Um and hopefully we'll talk about that one later as well, because they were, they would certainly have been able to um put on a show to represent the real Battle of Zama, rather than what the film portrays, because that's obviously nothing like the real Battle of Zama at all. Uh, but the real Battle of Zama is really quite interesting, and the Romans would have been quite capable of doing it, and they did do, they did do shows of famous battles, so they would have done it. There would have been elephants. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed it, yeah, still do.
2: Well, just as an aside to that, whilst we're sort of talking about Roman capability before we launch into the book and the questions, I remember reading back along, a news report saying that they have the facility to flood the Coliseum and do naval battles if, if they wanted to. Has that been confirmed or just proved
4: since? That, I don't think it's been resolved. I think that debate's still going on, because I've heard both sides of the argument for that. Um, but I know for sure that they did do naval battles outside the Colosseum, which is the argument against. Is they're saying that the, the sources are actually referencing an earlier battle, which they did outside the Coliseum, nearby, um, and I think they talked about the Circus Maximus being a site of a battle but they certainly did it on the, the I think it's called the Four Seen Lake or the Falcon Lake nearby, just outside Rome they did a massive naval battle there under the time of Claudius um, and that, funny enough, is the only time the gladiator, a gladiator was recorded as saying the very famous line um, you know, we salute you um, that's the only time that line's ever been said um, so uh, yes, so they, they definitely did do that. Whether, whether they done it in the Colosseum, it's still open to the debate is the answer to that, as far as I know.
3: So let's dig into um, the people um, in the movie. Um, Marcus Aurelius, he's kind of like the cuddly old guy. He's frail, desperate for peace and stability, and he's kind of portrayed like a um, Roman Dumbledore. On, yeah, on the... <laughs> he is. Um, yeah. In truth, he's the Emperor of Rome, was
4: uh, was he a pleasant person in reality? Well, I th- you know, you, you can actually get an idea of what he was like. If you, you know, his uh, his meditations book, which he wrote during the last years of his life when he was on campaign in, in an old one, Daniel,
1: um,
4: you do get a sense of someone who is very conscientious. He was quite um, growing up, he was um, very into stoicism. So uh, he was a very philosophical man. Um, a very serious man, he was, he, he was considered a bit sombre at times for some people. Um, the Emperor Hadrian, who um, was grooming him to be emperor, he actually had a sort of nickname. I think, I think he called it some sort of nickname about, about him always telling the truth. Um, uh, but it was a kind of derogatory thing that he was such a serious, straight person. And uh, Hadrian thought he was just a little bit too serious for, for him. But he was still happy enough to groom him. Um, but certainly when, he, uh, when you sort of look at um, his meditations, he talks about doing what's best for the empire and doing what's best for people and treating people nicely and kindly and trying to be... So whilst he's of his time, obviously he's the Roman emperor, he's living in a world of slavery, you still get a sense that whilst he can't... you know, you know He's not going to step outside of his culture and sort of declare everything's... Um, um, sort of you know, apply our standards to the time. He is still quite conscientious and kind. He does, he does talk about doing what's best for the empire and doing what's best for your common man and uh, not getting upset with people. And um, in general, when you compare him to all the other emperors, so certainly the ones that come after him, I'd, I'd give him a very positive rating. Certainly his contemporaries did. Cassio Dio you know, makes a famous line about the empire's gone from a time of uh, gold to one of rust. Um, so they saw the, his contemporaries look back at the time as being a kind of like a golden age.
2: That's interesting. So, I mean, tick there for Ridley Scott um, in terms of getting that one right. Let's stay with people uh, and talk about Lucilla. So where does she fit into all of this in terms of reality in this story? Because there's this whole thing about the marriage to um, the general but she doesn't have a happy marriage, does she, unlike what we see in the film? No,
4: it's interesting. I mean, she's got an interesting backstory as well. So she was 10 years older than Commodus, uh, roughly. And um, at the age of 13, she was married off to the co-emperor, Lucius Verus, who was about 30. Now, um, the um, sources seem to suggest she was very happy with, this, with her status in this. And the one thing that upset her was, uh, I believe, um, Lucius Verus's um, sister, um would sometimes put a nose out joint so she, you would get you get the sense that she was a bit of a social climber would get quite jealous of some of the people around her and that really comes to the fore later so she's married to lucius ferris all through her teenage years lucius ferris dies in um in 169 at which point she's about 19. she's then um her father marcus Aurelius forces her to marry the now 45-year-old um, Pompeianus. Now, Pompeianus, we're going to talk about later, because he is one of the two main characters that could be behind, well, say, could be, that, that uh, Maximus is based on. Um, so she marries him, but she didn't want to marry him at all. And her mother didn't want him to, be, uh, to marry him as well. He was seen as beneath her. He, was a, he, he had been an equestrian. He'd been promoted to the Senate by Marcus Aurelius. He was one of his favourite generals um there was on very good terms he was one of his senior advisors um she definitely didn't want to marry him and the sources later talk about the fact she absolutely hated him <laughs> so um and she wasn't best pleased with the fact that she was being married to someone who she considered beneath her and then all the way through the rest of her life which wasn't very long as it turned out um she continued to display this idea where she wasn't quite happy with um being downgraded in social status so when um before Commodus got married and before he was emperor, she had a certain level because she'd been the widow of the former co-emperor. She had the first row in the theatre. She was allowed to walk in a certain position in in, in possessions. Soon as uh, Commodus marries um, Crispina, she then gets downgraded because Crispina is now a higher social level and she hated Crispina. And part of the reason why she got embroiled in the plot with Commodus, according to Cassius Dio, was because she, uh, when Marcus Reyes died, she asked Commodus to, have a de- to divorce Pompeianus, and he refused it. And that coupled with the fact that he was now emperor and his wife was now the empress, that put her in a position where she felt she had to kill her brother. Basically, <laughs> that's what the sources say. And they do put a lot of blame on, on Lucia. So she gets very bad press.
2: That's a pretty epic family falling out, isn't it? I, would make a I mean, good let's film. be honest. I mean,
4: you know, I mean, as a plot, or as a subplot, that's pretty good, <laughs> you know, I think. And just, just as interesting as uh, being a sort of unrequited love to Maximus.
2: <laughs> yeah, so just to clear up the whole incest thing, that, that's just Hollywood. That's a fabrication, right? Yeah,
4: yeah. I don't think there's anything that suggests that.
3: Okay, so Joaquin Phoenix's absolutely epic, beautiful depiction of Commodus um, as the archetypical bad guy, it just totally enthralls everyone. And there's such a human vul- vulnerability um, at the heart of his character. Um, what kind of truth is there to that? Was the real Commodus in- insecure? Or was he just very- oh, I'm,
4: gonna, I'm gonna try and give an alternative view before I absolutely uh, absolutely destroy him. Um, But uh, he was only um, about um, 18 when he came to the throne. So he was very young when he came to the throne. in Phoenix was 26 when he played that part. So he's a a little bit older. Now, an 18-year-old, obviously, he's reliant on his advisors. If you look at his backstory, um, when he was five, he was um, declared Caesar. And his uncle, who he, who he really loved, um, Lucius Ferris, um, had him go in the, process, in the procession when, uh, for the victory parade after the Parthian War. It, so he had all these honours thrust uh, uh, upon him. His older brother died uh, in childhood. His twin brother died in childhood. He had all these um, you know, terrible family um, situations occur. He nearly died himself in childhood. His father kind of left him in Rome for a couple of years while he was fighting on the Danube. Um, and then when he was, when he was uh, 14, when he was 14, just before he was 14, before he got his uh, toga virilis, which is when he gets manhood, um, he was shipped off to the Danube to quickly have uh, the toga virilis uh, because there'd been a revolt in the east. And um, they were worried that um, they had to quickly declare him um, sort of a, an hour, if you like. Um, so he had all these all these bad things happen to him. His brother's dying. He had you know, threat. There's a senator in the East wants to kill it, obviously take over the throne, which would definitely mean he'd be killed. Um, so it's no wonder he was a little bit um, suspicious of the Senate. Um, and then he got the throne at the age of 18, and he still had the divide, one of whom was Pompeianus, who's one of the characters behind Maximus. And... Um, he, the early years, the sources, a couple of sources do say he performed quite well. While some of them say he as soon as his father died, he went back to Rome and started partying. Other sources suggest that actually he stayed on the Danube, he completed the war, took him two years. He came back. There was trouble in Britain. That was sorted out. His first few years was OK. The turning point was two years into his reign when his, his sister Lucia um, organised a plot with her lover. Um, to kill him, and a senator jumped out of the shadows on, on route to the, um, I think on route to the theater. Jumped out of the shadows and basically shouted out, "This is what the Senate has for you." And then started you know, started to try and stab him to death. So if you're 18, you're very sort of unsure of yourself. You get to about 20, and then you find out the Senate are trying to kill you. And the fellow has said, "This is what the Senate has got for you." And then when you uncover the plot, it turns out your own sister has been involved. I think you'd be um, entitled to feel a little bit, <laughs> a little bit unsure of yourself. Um, and he was very young. So he did spend quite a lot of time in his youth, riding chariots, fighting in private gladiatorial contests, doing things that most of the senators of the day looked down upon, because um, they thought he wasn't becoming of an emperor. So he had a very rocky start and a very bad um, relationship with the Senate. However, there's no excuse for what happened later on, which is when he sort of went completely off the rail, started declaring himself to be Hercules and walking around dressed as a god and then trying to um, change the name of every month and, and Rome to his own name, versions of the Commodus. Um, there's, there's very little you can say to sort of excuse that sort of behaviour. And he did kill, you know, he did execute quite a lot of people for no apparent reason. But anyway, we'll get into that later. Um, but, um, we- yeah, sorry, go on, go on.
2: I mean, we will. Uh, you make a really good point. You know, how many 18-year-olds do we know and how many of them are well-adjusted human beings? You know, yeah. yeah, you can say 21st century society at me as much as you like, but at 18, you don't know very much, but you do think you know everything. Um, and and <laughs> it takes time to become a, a properly adjusted human. Um, so <laughs> there is certainly something in that. I'm also marveling just how crap an assassination plot that is some guy jumps out and tries to stab you to death it's not very well thought through why is it such a crap assassination attempt
4: obviously we're only going on 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 a couple of sources but they are contemporary sources cassio dio lived through this you know he was there and and on one stage (laughs) he was saying a the group of senators only escaped execution because they stopped themselves laughing by eating laurel leaves or so or or something whatever they were had in front of them because the emperor was behaving oddly in front of them and they, they knew if they laughed at him <laughs> they'd be for the um chopping pot. Um but no he um yes it does sound like the and the other thing was that Commodus apparently was quite he was quite handy apparently I mean if you read between the lines they're saying they uh, later on when they tried to do pots they didn't try to repeat that because they knew he was so adept at fighting, basically. Um, so, um, and he did used to, he was a very physically active person and apparently he was very skilled with weapons and on horseback and, you know, he, he was a young man. He had access to all this stuff, enough time to train the best trainers in the world. He was quite good. So when this guy gave him the warning that gave him time to fight him off and then the Praetorian guards came and arrested him, uh, um, Yes, but it does sound very inept, you know, just a single person jumping out of the shadows. Um, but um, it only takes one person to get through a course. Um, but that was, the t- I think that was the turning point. That was a, or a major turning point in his reign. Um, because after that, um, and this is another theme that goes through the film, this whole thing about the uh, Empire going back to the Republic, which hopefully we'll talk about, because um, that's a, you know, obviously made up for the film. There was absolutely no, no intention of Marcus Aurelius to return to the public. Um, but there, there was this whole idea of, you know, the emperor is just the first among equals and the Senate. Um, whilst the reality is the emperor is making all the decisions, Marcus Aurelius was clever enough to always go to the Senate and say, would you mind doing this? And, and he, always, he always respected the Senate and he always took their views. Um, whereas uh, Commodus... Once this plot happened, that was it. He elected Freedmen as his councillors. He put uh, equestrians in charge of certain positions. Senators you know, didn't have the access Freedmen did. And that just created a vicious circle. The more he did that, the more the senators hated him. The more they hated him, the more he did it. And then eventually more and more plots came about. Um, and, uh, well, yeah, so it was just, it was just a complete um, destruction of the relationship and completely at odds with how his father handled it and his predecessor, which was Antonius Pierce, which they, both of them were seen as very good emperors. And they both respected the Senate. And they, and they played the game, if, if you like.
2: So let's move on to the big one, you know, Maximus, who is, I mean, there are a couple of contenders here, yes. you know, aren't there? There are a couple who have semblance. We should emphasise that the Maximus portrayed in the film is a fictitious character, this idea that man goes from general to being a slave, surviving an execution attempt, um, then finds Mm -hmm. some kind guy who trains him, gives him the opportunity to be a gladiator in Rome, and then he goes and murders the emperor. All of that is Hollywood people, if you haven't (laughs) worked it out already. But that's not to say that there aren't strands of the character that can be brought into the film, which I gather it is what they've kind of done. They've kind of taken elements of people yeah. to make that happen.
4: Yeah. So they, well, I, mean, I suppose we I should start with a fellow called C- Cincinnati, which uh, Cincinnati is named after. Um, and he was in the fifth century BC. And at the time, obviously, it was, a, it was a republic and you had the Senate and you had the consuls, two consuls every year. But if they were in an emergency, they could elect a dictator which doesn't have the connotations it does today. A dictator was a good thing. We elected a dictator. He sorts out the emergency and then he steps down from the role. And you give him six months or whatever, a year, whatever you need to give him. So this fella stepped up to the role. Um, it was, um, I can't remember which, uh, who they were fighting, but he won, he won the war, stepped down from the role immediately. And then a couple of years later, he did exactly the exact same thing. So he had a very a, a heroic status in uh, sort of the Roman mind as being sort of um, a typical this is this is what duty is you step up you do do this but you don't take power you step back down and you could see the erosion of that belief when you know they, they made julius Caesar dictator and then they made him dictator for 10 years and then they made him dictator for life and then you know, end up going into the uh, into the yeah, um, empire um but going back to the second century you've got two characters one is uh, maximianus who was a general he started off as an equestrian he got promoted to the senate when he was a general in the Marcomannic Wars, he actually um, fought single combat against uh, um, the, uh, the chief of the Naristi, killed him and was awarded by the emperor. Subsequently, he got promoted, become a, a legionary legate, and he led, he's the one who led the army in the last battle, which is the one portrayed in the film. So when you see that general in the film, um, there was a general. He was actually, wasn't called Maximus, it was called Maxianus. Uh, Marcus Valerius and um, he did win the battle okay now that's where his involvement sort of ends there is no we don't know hardly anything about him I think he was a consul in 186 that's the last we hear of him we don't hear anything more so people assume he died somewhere in the late second century because he would have been in his 50s then but the main person is Tiberius Claudius Pompeianus who is uh, also wasn't a question got promoted to the Senate, become one of his favourite generals. He's the fellow we were talking about earlier who married Lucia. Um, So I would say that most of, apart from, he didn't didn't become a gladiator, but he was a a general in Marcus Aurelius' army. Um, But the thing is that Commodus and him had a good relationship, the sources would suggest. You know, he stayed as an advisor when um, Lucia was implicated in the plot and executed. He wasn't. He Wasn't executed at all. Lucia and, and Pompianus had a child, um, and he was actually, um, uh, he actually survived all the way, all the way through that period. He actually became a, a senator. He was killed under Caracalla like 30 years later. But, um, towards the end of Commodus's reign, he actually named him and took it. Um, the, the son took his name. So in the film, it's Lucius Verus, but in reality, it was, um, he was called Pompeianus as well, and he took Commodus's name. So some sort, some historians believe that Commodus actually at one point was thinking of naming him the heir. So he's naming his nephew, Lucia's see his son as heir for when he died. Now, as it happened, that did not happen. Um, but the lad survived; he wasn't he wasn't killed off in the year of the five emperors. So, um, so yeah. So Pompeianus, he stayed in good favour all the way through that, and he does play a part at the end of Commodus's death, which we'll come to hopefully a little bit later. But yes, Pompeianus would be the main person. Maximianus would be the general at the start of the film in in, in the battle.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass. sorry about the beeping We have trucks going by so um the battle tactics um i know this is places where a lot of historians have fits about because they're not done correct so what are your take on the battles in the film are they decently done
4: well they're great to watch i'd say but i I mean, you sort of go through it point by point you know, would you really do a cavalry charge through a heavily forested area? Um, I mean, I don't ride horses, but I'm told by people who do that, that um, galloping horses through woodland is probably not the best the best idea, yeah? especially not if you've got like a couple of thousand cavalry altogether. Um, uh, fire arrows. I mean, why, why, why would you need fire arrows? Um, if you, as soon as you put a cage on an arrow or you put any kind of weight on it, you reduce the flight. Um and if you're not trying to set stuff on fire, why why are you using fire arrows? Um the uh, catapults, the blisters, onagers again. Um if you're going to use fire, it would normally be if you're in a siege situation and you're trying to set fire to the um to the town or city you're besieging. Um and you wouldn't be firing it into woodland because obviously the woods <laughs> the trees will protect them in some way. Um the um the Romans start off in a in a sort of um, not not a fault, but it is an earth. They've obviously built some earthworks and they've put stakes up. Um, why why would you leave that? You'd stay there and wait for them to come onto you. Um, I mean, they can sally out, but the whole point of being there is is it protects you. So I mean, you could happily sit there and fire arrows all day long, whatever attacking you. Um, but the interesting thing is when they actually do it, they do decide to attack. So okay, they decide to attack. And they go off in, um, in lines of two. They're kind of like two deep, the lines. Now, normally, what the Romans in, in sort of battles like Mons Grappius and um, Watling Street, Boudicca, um, the legions are like a wall of, uh, Vegetius later on says, you know, it's like a wall of wood and iron. So they are like this solid wall. And the auxiliaries go ahead of them. And the lighting imp- and the light infantry and archers and they try and sort of like either drive them off, in which case the cavalry will then chase them down and kill them, or draw them on to this wall of wood and iron, who stand there like a like a rock, and then the enemy come on and um hopefully um crash onto that and are defeated. Um, but in the film it doesn't look like the auxiliary, it looks like the heavy entry, it looks like the legion are actually attacking, and then when they get to them, what the Romans would tend to do is they've, both, they've got um, two spears, Pilar. They'd throw them. If you've got a legion, 5,000 men or more, that's 5,000 Pilar. That's 10,000 in 20 seconds. You can throw two. And, you know, that's obviously going to have some damage. They didn't bother with any of that. they probably throw their Pilar. And then they form a testudo, which um, is a bit of an odd tactic if you're not in a siege. So I found that all very, it's all very odd. They didn't need to do that. They could have won I mean, the best um, depiction, I think. I don't know how you feel about it. But um, um, HBO's Rome. They did a really good initial scene in the first in the first episode of uh, a Roman cohort uh, infantry cohort fighting. I thought that was really well done. Um, but whilst this one looked good in Gladiator, yeah, when you pick apart the tactics, it's obviously not. It's not as. It's nowhere near uh, accurate from what you're reading contemporary accounts of battles at all.
2: No, I mean if you ride a horse through a heavily wooded area all of those branches that they're not up the top people that you're going to get a branch in your face, first of all, especially if you're going to gallop through it. Um, And then secondly, the whole point about cavalry is formation shock factor and, and physical impact of horse and rider breaking through ranks. And if you've got trees in the way, you don't maintain that formation. So on many levels, and also you wouldn't make your horses ride through fire. What are the odds that your horse is not going to bolt at the size, the, the, at the sight of um, a wall of fire, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, it, it looks incredible, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other issue I have with it is the barbarians because they uh, seem to be cast as a bit dumb, don't they? Oh, we're going to stand here and we're going to wait for the Romans, and then we're going to yeah. hide under the trees, and then we're just going to not really do anything but charge at them. Yeah. These I, I, like
4: not- how they pin- <laughs> I like how they pinch the soundtrack from Zulu. No, I'm old enough to remember Zulu film and they've got this, they've pinched the soundtrack. So they have all these Zulu warriors calling. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean,
2: these are, these are not the, the Germanic tribes responsible for the Tannenberg forest incident, no. are they? So, I uh, mean, is this just Hollywood, you know?
4: Yeah. So, that, so I mean, a, there's that
2: line, isn't there, you know, people should know when they're conquered sort of Rome civilization. Anybody else is just a bit thick.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, uh, the Batavians um, was a tribe um, and they, uh, they had a revolt in 70, 70 AD. So, sort of 100 years before that. And um, they, a very good example, attacked a Roman fort uh, in three blocks, three different tribes, uh, and actually got inside the fort. But they did it un- at night in-, in a surprise attack, which is how you would attack a fort. You wouldn't sort of wave your you know, wave your, you know, presence and, and let them know and then let them fire arrows and stuff. You'd creep up on them at night and try and get in. Um, but then, okay, if you're going to attack across an open field, right, either, either you hide in the trees and wait to draw them out or you, you attack as fast as you can running across the couple of hundred yards or wherever it is, um, at, at which point, of course, the Romans would have set out markers and would know when to fire them out because if they come out the trees you don't want to scare them off you want them into the killing zones. uh vegetus mentions uh, um the romans trained at 180 meters for their archers and a third of them um third of their men should be trained as archers um so 180 meters so we're talking about two two football fields but obviously um the more effective so the the, the lesser the distance the greater the effect of the buries um so it says so like a number of different factors so at 180 meters um, it, it, you know, it might be half as effective as at, at say 100 meters. So you might want to draw them into sort of half halfway. And of course, it's quite. I mean, 100 meters is quite quite a long way. If you're carrying a sword and a shield and a spear, and you're, you know, even if you got, I mean, the Germans probably most of them probably didn't have armor. But if they'd been auxiliaries, as a lot of the as a lot of the um, German tribes were, then um, some of them would have had chainmail armor. The ones who didn't have chainmail armor, they would have had some sort of leather armor. And yeah, you know, there's. Plenty of reenactors who have tested leather armour. And, you know, if you've got a couple of layers of leather stuffed with even just two inches of wool, that's actually quite effective. Very effective against slashing blows. Not so effective against the spear thrust. But um, when you see these um, battle scenes where people are getting sliced by a sword and they fall over dead, that's just not happening because they wore armour for a reason and it worked. That's why they did it. (laughs) Otherwise, (laughs) they wouldn't have bothered. The we'll bother spending all that time, chainmail armor take about two months' work to make. we are not going to bother spending two months making armor, spend an arm and a an leg on it, and then wear it tromping about forests if it didn't work. So, um, so yes, yeah, so and, and of course, they're all in like bear skins and nonsense like that. So, so yes, it was all very, they did make them look like barbarians, um, when, when in reality. A lot of them would have probably looked, some of them, i would say a lot of them, some of them would have looked very similar to Roman auxiliaries. Some of them would have had uh, some sort of uh, leather armour on. They'd have all had, had reasonable sh- shields. I think um, Tacitus um, mentions um, hexagonal shields, oval shields, all different um, types of shields, very large spears, which you can only presume are larger than Roman spears. Um, most of them had spears rather than swords, but the elite would have had swords um they were famed for their cavalry but um i think most historians think that um there was it was more infantry it was predominantly infantry in the germanic armies of the the time although we can't we can't assume that all it was an homogenous society i mean we we talk about germania and germanic peoples but obviously it's hundreds of tribes and they would have all been very very different and if you'd if you'd have you know called one a german today if you was to try go back in time and call one they wouldn't know what you're talking about so um they would have identified with their tribe and they would have all been very different but yes they certainly were they certainly um they certainly weren't inept they weren't military inept they won plenty of battles against the romans um it was just in the end generally the romans tended to win the wars
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So... Onto what I personally feel is my favorite parts. So the gladiator scenes. So when it comes to like fighting the big cats, I know mine, well, they mostly just lay around and sleep. So during the day, I mean, they're, they're mostly nocturnal. So unless you would starve the tigers and the lions and a lot of the big cats that they had in the arena and they're desperate for meals they wouldn't really attack too much, but I do know that there were animal hunts in the arena. Um, what were those like,
4: right? Okay, so I mean, um, I think when they think of gladiators, I mean, the way it was, the way it was done in the film was that it was like some sort of mass brawl, it was far more like uh, a modern boxing match, um, and it was far more, more like um, spread over a uh, festival. So, whilst they you know, gladiators. Uh, bouts they started off as kind of like a uh, funeral rites um part of the funeral rites um over the centuries they sort of evolved and become part of these festivals and there might have only been a couple of festivals in the year so gladiator might have only fought twice a year a bit like a modern boxer that's that's how we should think about it and like a modern boxer he'd be fighting one-on-one with a referee and there'd be there's set rules in that match he wouldn't be in an arena chained with other boxers or fighting against 10 other boxers that just wouldn't happen um, so with the um, the gladiator tend, tended to be sort of the main event so you'd have your sort of beast hunts in the morning and you might have a few days of beast hunts and then in sort of the lunchtime you might have your execution of prisoners and then in the afternoon you might have 10 or 12 bouts of mixed pair of gladiators one after another so that would be your day's entertainment and that might be spread across a couple of weeks. Um, so that'd be your average festival. Now, there were emperors who put on you know, weeks and weeks of it, um, but that's how you should look at it. Now the beast hunts, they did indeed, the sources do mention tigers, and liners, rhinoceros even, a hippopotamus, an elephant. They mentioned all these things and they mentioned thousands of them being killed. So there was a massive industry of capturing these animals, even one of them, um, co- there was one, one event, it was crocodiles, 20 crocodiles were killed um but elephants certainly featured which is why uh, when we talk about zama we can we can sort of be fairly sure that they would have used elephants if they did recreate zama they would have used elephants um, wouldn't necessarily have had to kill them but they would have used them. um so yes so the beast hunts and commodus apparently was very adept at this so he would um, they, they would build like a platform around the arena and he'd be running around the platform dressed as hercules or somebody and he'd be shooting these poor animals at one event, I think he killed a hundred lions with a hundred travelings. Um so um so yes, yeah, so beast hunts were were part of it. Um, but the combination of beasts with gladiators, um, perhaps not so much. I mean, we can't say it never happened, but that's not how the sources depict it. They sort of you know they they make a clear distinction, uh, you know, beast hunts. Um but interesting thing about beast hunts is um what they used to do with the prisoners there's some very interesting stories uh so there was a um a fella in the first century was a spartacus type fella he was an escaped slave and they captured him and um they built um they put him basically in a cage above another load of cages and in the cages at the bottom were loads of beasts they don't specify what the animals were but obviously it was set up as a punishment and there was some sort of show. We don't know what happened, but at some point the top cage opened up and the poor fella fell down into the bottom cages where the animals killed him and that was his punishment. Um, there was another fella who was um, crucified and they set a bear on him. Um, there was another, there's the they used to do um, uh, reenact Greek myths. So you've got the one Prometheus and the fire. So they, they tied a, a prisoner to, to a... Um, you know, it's a, it's a rock or something, and instead of an eagle, it was a bit hard to get a trained eagle to eat someone's liver. They set a bear on him, so obviously he couldn't regrow. <laughs> he just couldn't regrow himself and uh, and go through it every day like Prometheus. Um, but um, they reenacted it, and the bear obviously killed the poor old prisoner, and that was his punishment. There's another one um, which your mind boggles at, which is um, the story of um, King Minos where um the gods um punish him by they make his wife couple with a ball and the resulting child is the minotaur it's the famous story of the Minotaur. that's where the minotaur comes from um so to reenact this they um they get some poor prisoner and the mind boggles what they did with the ball (laughs) but apparently they reenacted it in some way it doesn't specify what actually they got the ball to do um but it just goes to show you that they were very inventive and imaginative in their in their displays um I can see the horror on your face at the fall <laughs> um but yeah, they were um um could be quite um could be quite horrific and bloody um the beast hunts uh, in, in the morning's entertainment
2: wow ouch um ouch indeed. Lovely. um i i think the uh, i think Heather absolutely lost any respect for Commodus at the point at which you said that he killed, what was it, a hundred big cats um in, in one go
4: whilst he was running around with his bow shooting people? Yeah, shooting he's, he's, and tigers. certainly killed he killed hundreds and hundreds of animals, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. mean, yeah. yeah. this goes on to the end of his career because because whilst he was behaving like this, he was he was he was it was bad enough that he was performing in the arena. That was bad enough for the senators and they all and we've already said the relationship had broken down but the fact that the emperor was parading about and pretending to be hercules or whoever and and taking part in these games was horrific to the senators they thought it was beneath him but yet at that point fought in the arena he'd 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 done like little cameos and he'd fought with wooden swords and he had private bouts where he reportedly had injured and killed people um, and that was bad enough. They thought that was terrible behaviour, that he shouldn't be doing that. He, um, Marcus Aurelius would never dream. Marcus Aurelius hated, he absolutely hated um, Gladiator contests. And the funny thing is, Marcus Aurelius is very similar to Antonius Pius, whereas Commodus is very similar to Lucius Ferris and Hadrian. Very similar characters. Um, they absolutely loved Gladiator games, very sporty, very active, whereas um, Marcus Aurelius and Antonius Pius were very sort of booky, very academic, very serious people. Um, so, um, yes, so he, um, yeah, so the end, so towards the end of his career, um, so end, end of his reign, one, thing thing which we'll talk about in minute, when it comes to the, the final thing, the final plot was that he declared he wanted to fight in the arena properly as a proper gladiator. So when people talk about the fact that he fought as a gladiator, yes, he did, but there's actually no evidence he fought as a proper gladiator with an edged blade against another gladiator until the final couple of weeks of his life. All the references before that kind of suggest that he was taking part in the games, playing little cameos, using wooden swords, um, but then going back up to his box and sitting there dressed as Jupiter or Hercules. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that created the final argument, which you must, must remember to ask me about, because that is what ended up um in the fight in his assassination.
2: Well, let's go there right now. You know how does he actually die? Because you know you said it yourself. There's the, there's some action in the arena, but my understanding was that's not how he actually meets
4: his end. No, right. That, that's fascinating. I mean, that made great film. And I and and and, and um, I, I would add that Pompeianus, who we mentioned, had actually been offered the throne when he married Lucia. He was offered the throne. By Marcus Aurelius and he turned it down so there is and, he, and later on in the story which we'll get to he turns it down two more times after Commodus died so it's quite an important part of the story but um, getting back to uh, Commodus so what, what happened was he's um, after the first plot he's bumped off he's executed one of his freedmen who was implicated he's then had a succession of freedmen and Praetorian guards who have rose to power and been executed one after another so he gets to um, uh, 193 or 192, I should say, gets to 192. He's now got his concubine, Marcia, his Praetorian prefect, Latus, and um, Eclectus, his uh, freedman advisor. And they're sitting there, obviously, looking back in history, they can see all these people have been killed. <laughs> and they, they are sort of just the last people to hold, hold the position. And uh, Commodus says, I I've had enough of playing at gladiator. I'm going to be a gladiator. I'm going to put on the, the show of the uh, empire and I'm, I'm going to be the man and I'm going to lead the gladiators out into the arena. And they also, you can't do that. That's, you know, everyone, you know, the senators have already got the, um, already lost faith in you. It's just going to look terrible. You're demeaning your position. Don't do it. He gets really angry. He throws Marcia out. The other two come in and do the same thing. He throws them out. Um. He then goes... And he writes of people I'm going to kill list on a wax tablet and promptly falls asleep. Meanwhile, a young lad who lives at the palace, he's walking through the palace, a young boy, doesn't say how old he is, picks up the wax tablet absent-mindedly, and is walking through the palace and bumps into Marcia, who says, what have you got there? He hands her the tablet and she sees people I'm going to kill list, Marcia, (laughs) along with eclectus and latus and loads of senators. So you can imagine what Marcia thought. You know the, the, imagine if you did at work you know you're walking through and you pick up a you find a bit of paper that says people i'm going to sack tomorrow list and it's you at the top or people i'm going to kill tomorrow and it's, yeah so marcia was oh, a bit panicked by this and she runs to the other two and she says look he's gonna he's gonna kill us we better do something so they decide to kill him um now this is where it gets a bit murky because um i think the sources are hiding something here because this happens supposedly before the festival, so, uh, Santa Alia, which is the 17th of December. He doesn't die until the 31st of December. So they're saying this thing happened, but they don't kill him for two weeks. But when they talk about, when the sources describe it, it's like there's it, a big panic. They go, they decide to kill him. They poison him. There's a, there's a dispute whether it was through his beef or his wine. It didn't work. He vomits. He then um goes off and has a bath they panic again they go and get his wrestler Nos- Narcissus, who luckily enough says yes okay i'll go along with it and he goes in and kills him in the bath strangles him to death so i would suggest that um what these sources um are hiding is the fact that this was a much wider deeper plot over a longer period of time because it doesn't make sense that um He's decided to kill them before the festival, waited two weeks, and then they murdered him two weeks later. That doesn't that doesn't really make a lot of sense. More so when you hear the next bit, because they then have to carry his body. And this goes to show you that he was actually quite popular with some people, that they had to hide his body and carry it out so the Praetorian guards didn't see it. So they've wrapped him in a blanket, carried him out, taken him um, out into the suburbs to a mausoleum. They've then gone to see Pertinax, who um, was a friend of Pompeianus and a friend of Maximus, fought in the Mac- uh, Marcomoni Wars, was one of Marcus Aurelius's uh, generals. Um, he is the urban prefect. Um, they go and start, he, supposedly the sources say that Pertinax thought they were coming to kill him. He, they come, they tell him what they, what's happened. He says, right, okay, I'm with you. We'll go to the Senate, we'll tell him what's happened. We can put all these terrible years behind us. And we decide um, what we're going to do. They go to the Senate. They say to the Senate, he's died um, from um, just a drunken fever, apoplexy or something. Um, Some people don't believe him. But in general, the Senate are kind of overjoyed because Commodus has spent the last 10 years murdering 20% of them. Um, And they decide um, to offer the position to Pompeianus who declines again. So this is where you get the idea of, in the film of Pompeiades being offered the empire to somehow restore, restore some sort of republic, which he didn't. Um, but they, he is offered the throne three times in the end. So this is the second time. Um, he declines it, he ends up going to Pertinax, who gets a gets a very good press uh, from, the, from the sources. Pertinax becomes emperor, um, and he tries to take the Praetorian Guards, the senators are very happy with the change. The people are very happy um, and Commodus' name is damned um, where they, they erase all his memory, take, scrub out all his uh, inscriptions and, um, and everyone hopes at that point it's going to return, not to a Republic, but return to the, the empire of Marcus Aurelius, because Pertinax is a very similar type of person, very conscientious, puts the Senate first, um, seems very reasonable comes across very well unfortunately that's not how it panned out but i'll I'll wait until see what more you want to ask
2: i just ask and chip in here how crap are the praetorian guard they don't they're not there to stop the first assassination attempt they don't notice when he gets strangled
4: in his bath i mean what are these guys doing For heaven's sake I can, tell, I can tell you what the next the next bit of the story makes them look even worse. And again, it would just make a fantastic film. So the Praetorian Guard, they loved Commodus because they'd been bigged up by him. He he, he, um, he treated them very well. He gave them um, you know, loads of money and loads of privileges. Pertinax has come along like a proper, because he's an army man, he's a proper army man. He's gone, we're not having any more of this nonsense. You're going to be a proper Praetorian Guard. He's taken away their privileges. He made them do proper training and And they're not happy. So um, two months into his reign, or or three months, I think it is, in March, um, they decide to, um, um, there's a little bit of a, not a rebellion, I should say, there's unrest in the Praetorian camp. So Pertinax sends his father-in-law to go and sort them out. He goes there, they capture him and and sit him on a chair, tie him up, (laughs) and then march to the palace where they find Pertinax, the emperor, and Eclectus. Commodus's old um, freedman advisor. And everyone, everyone runs away, but it shows you that Pertinax and the collectors were actually quite brave men because they stood their ground against all these Praetorian guardsmen, like dozens and dozens of them. And they actually faced them down and talked them out a bit. But one, um, a German, I think he was, pulled his sword out and decided to, um, he wanted to kill him. So there was a, there was a fight, and Pertinax, Pertinax was killed. Praetorian card all steamed in, and they cut his head off and paraded it back to the praetorian camp at which point they didn't know what they were doing they, they had no plan they didn't know what they were doing so the father-in-law was sitting at the camp waiting for him to come back and he's confronted with his son-in-law's head on a spike being paraded through the gates and he promptly says well the emperor's dead we need a new emperor how about me and they're like well we're not sure why should we give it to you so he said well i'll do this 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 and this for you um, and he starts to offer them various things. Meanwhile, in the city, the word is getting out. Other senators find out. One particular sen- senator, Julianus, thinks, well, I'll have a go at this. So he runs to the camp and he says, you know, let me in. I'll, I'll do you a deal. And they basically say no. And he, he finds out that um has offered them a sum of money to make him emperor. So he then shouts, well, I'll offer 25,000 to the and they end up having this auction, which is the most, it's described as the most disgraceful part of Roman history, where the Praetorian Guard suddenly realize I'm in the middle of, a, of an auction and the price goes up and up and up and up. And um, Julianus wins it. So they give it to Julianus. They march into the Senate. The Senators are all sitting there very, very grumpy because Pertinax has just been killed. And now they have this like third rate nobody thrust upon them by the Praetorian Guard. It's a little bit like the Tory. Uh, Tory election at the moment. <laughs> Imagine the army marching one of these lesser known people, so they ask the parliament saying, "This is your new prime minister," and um, and he he gets placed as as um, uh, emperor. Meanwhile, three other emperors around the uh, three other um, legionary legates around the empire have heard that pertinence is dead, and all three of them declare themselves emperor. So you've got Niger in uh, Syria Egypt. You've got um, Severus, uh, Septimius on the Danube, and you've got Claudius Albinus in Britain. All three of them say, well, we want to be emperor as well. And they all get their armies together and start and march on Rome, while um, Didius Julianus says, well, I'm the emperor now, I was here first. And um, that didn't end well, really, basically, because uh, what, what happens to poor old Julianus is he lasted about two months. His support ebbed away. He again tried to, he offered the throne to Poblianus, to try and placate everybody he again turned it down the third time and um in the end septimus um severus got there first and um julianus was killed by a member of his own guard and um then we have a civil war severus defeats niger and then a few years later he defeats albinus and then you get the Severan dynasty so, yes, an amazing, uh, amazing period of Roman history, that. that's all, that, that's all 193. 192 to 193, absolutely uh, absolutely hectic. <laughs> and, and Severus, when he, when he uh, marched on Rome, home, he, he turfed out the Victorian Guard, made them all line up, stripped them of their armour, stripped them of their weapons, and he, he uh, basically uh, dismissed them and got rid of them all. Well,
2: I'm uh, not surprised. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, wow, what does it take to buy an emperor ship? A, yeah. a, a few hundred thousands of from the
4: sounds of things, yeah. that's and, and they did. I mean, they did very similar with uh, with Claudius. You know, when they killed, when when Caligula was killed, very similar character. The Praetorians loved Caligula, and they were they were merrily going around murdering all his family and anybody they thought was implicated in the murder. And they found Claudius cowering behind a curtain, dragged him out, and a quirk of history could have killed him. Decided not to, made him emperor. And then he invades Britain. So, if that hadn't happened, maybe he wouldn't have invaded Britain. Maybe there'd have been no Roman Britain. So, yeah, interesting little quirks of history. Wow, Tony, it's
1: yeah, been. To
4: be honest.
3: Um, yeah, whenever I hear uh, Didius Julianus, all I can think of is somebody who grew up thinking, oh, I would love to be emperor. This would be so much fun and it's going to be awesome. And he, oh, I can pay for this. Oh, that's great. Oh, I made a mistake.
4: oh yeah yeah he was at a dinner party apparently when someone rushed in and said oh guess what's happening and and he was urged by his friends he oh, that's a good idea and off he went and then two months later he's saying what his last words were something like but i've done nothing what have i ever done something like that very very pathetic um he even he even tried to abdicate and they they didn't even uh, and they they, they, um, reconvened the senate without him and declared him basically um non-person and sent someone off to kill him and he was in the he was in the palace all on his own even his guard had left him nobody there Uh, very sad very sad end
2: that is a slightly sad end to be honest with you it's been a belter of an interview tony thank you so much for joining us for this um i think at some point you need to come back and talk about king arthur i think that needs to happen um but your book's king arthur man or myth um and the real gladiator the true They're story right. of maximus decimus meridius are
4: out now aren't they so folks can go uh, by them well there are two i, I can i just say there are two others of the battles of king arthur is out where i just talk about the battles in the in the famous battle list but also i've done one on the roman king arthur Lucius auteurus castus which is um on the theories behind the film with clive owen 2004 film clive owen and knightley and that's out now as well but, And that's a very interesting uh, interesting story as well which would uh, be great to talk about but yes It'd be lovely to talk to you again.
2: I remember that film very well. I was even younger when I saw that one um, and, and found it quite enjoyable. But now I look at it and think, hmm, okay then. Uh, <laughs> as you say, that's an interview for another day. This has been a bell, so thank you so much for joining us. Lovely.
4: Thank you very much